0: Big-time government events and big-time government arrests in a very active week of news.
1: We'll talk to Terry Dunlap of Refirm Labs about his company is taking a different tack to protect IoT.
0: Welcome back. It's a curiosity for August 3rd. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity. Greg Otto here with my co-host Jen O'Daniel. Jen, we thought it'd be a quiet week on the eve of Hacker Summer Camp.
1: Yeah, and we were wrong. Seems like the government gave us waves of news every day this week.
0: Government seemed to have its own cyber week this week, so let's get down to it, shall we?
1: Let's start with a big DHS summit in New York on Tuesday. With industry pressuring the DHS to do a better job of warning it, of cyber threats the department unveiled plans for a new national risk management center the interagency center will be focal point for the government to measure risk to critical infrastructure an area that dhs has been working to improve the initiative is part of a broader revamp underway of dhs's approach to protecting everything from dams to voting systems from advanced hacking groups greg i knew you were in new york city for the event what was your reaction to the announcement
0: So my reaction seemed to fit with the reaction of some other industry luminaries that were in New York for this announcement and DHS's entire event was that, look, they think this is a good thing. They want more information sharing and they want a better way to do it. But then there were some people that wondered if this was a little too much because right now DHS has the NKIC floor, they have the automated information sharing system, they have the cert teams. And this just seems to be another thing that is supposed to be really just relating back to the whole information sharing thing. So there are several outlets now for the private sector to share information with DHS. So why do we need another one again? So look, this may end up being a reset of a reset of a reset that works. And this may be the thing that gets the private sector and the public sector online when it comes to information sharing. But I mean, it's, bureaucracy right now. So it's interesting to see how this is going to fold into the bigger rework and revamp of NPPD. There's been some bills on Capitol Hill to try to make NPPD, its own sub-agency under DHS. And I think that if that sees the light of day, you're going to see the National Risk Management Center be a really big focal point of that new sub-agency. So they're laying the groundwork for a revamp, and hopefully this works. But in the current structure that they have, I think this is just another layer that doesn't need to be there right now.
1: Well, let's hope it improves critical infrastructure protection.
0: Yeah, I I mean, that is something that was also talked about uh, ad nauseum on Tuesday, especially uh, the vice president. Mike Pence on Tuesday directly appealed to states to accept federal aid for election security, which is critical infrastructure. Pence was clear on Russian meddling and protecting against further efforts to have the country – have its democratic process undermined it. In an interesting twist, however, he said his administration inherited a cybersecurity crisis from the last administration, pointing to the OPM hack and various intrusions at the State Department and classified White House networks as a dereliction of the Obama administration's duties. What Pence did not talk about, however, was the 2016 DNC hack that everyone else has talked about for the past two years. So, Jen, Did you ever think that you'd see cybersecurity become politicized?
1: We would politicize everything. So no, I'm not surprised, but I wish we'd keep it out of it and just fix the problem.
0: I know that that is the reaction that a lot of people had in New York as well. That, look, there are a lot of civil servants that are still currently in cybersecurity inside the federal government that have been inside the federal government under numerous administrations, Mm -hmm. bridging back to Obama and carrying over into the trump administration and they kind of were blindsided by uh what the vice president had to say in that you know they just felt that it was a shot at them in that they're just civil servants like they do their job regardless of of the political party in office
1: yeah i don't really take it as a shot at them per se i think cybersecurity risk gets greater and greater as time goes on and we just have to figure out how to fix it and it's it's really not who's there. It's sort of the policies around it.
0: Right, right. And and look, the Obama administration did do some things. I remember that there was that big executive order, the Cybersecurity National Action Plan, where they tried to put stuff in place. I'm not going to say they were perfect, because they clearly were not. But at, at, at the same time, it, it's just like a government function. And when we start to politicize government functions, I think we're getting into a very... Not dangerous place, but to a place that it just doesn't need to go.
1: I agree. So also on Tuesday, Greg, you broke a really interesting story. The National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center, that 24-hour hub for monitoring cyber threats across the government and critical infrastructure, has shifted operations to a backup location in Florida. The move was made after the Arlington, Virginia building that houses the NKIC lost power last week due to heavy rains. Additionally, two other programs under Cyber Hygiene Vulnerability Scans and Phishing Campaign Assessment have been offline since July 26th. The Cyber Hygiene Program remotely detects known vulnerabilities on internet-facing services. The Phishing Campaign Assessment Program is part of our remote penetration testing services. Both programs are used by hundreds of customers across the country. Thirty-four states' election systems have received vulnerability scans through the Cyber Hygiene Program and they will be the first ones to get scans once the system is back up. So the election system is getting scanned right now?
0: So they're they're not. They're actually not being scanned by DHS right now. They're going to start to be scanned next week. They think the system is going to be back up by August 6th. So, yeah, let's back up about these systems. There's a, a building in Arlington that, when it rained so heavily in the D.C. area last week, It, it, the, the building flooded. It it was bad. There's actually footage of the restaurant that's on the ground level where water came pouring in through the windows and the roof. Like it was that bad. Sounds like we need to
1: spend more money on infrastructure. Yeah,
0: right. And, and that's something that we talked to Chris Krebs and Jeanette Manfra in New York during the summit about this story. And Krebs was very forthcoming, was like, look, this happened. This is a non-mission critical systems. We still have backup, and the end kick was never really offline. It just got moved to a Pensacola, Florida location. But Krebs talked about the resiliency factor in this, and that things like this go. Yeah, maybe we need to have a clear and honest conversation about our resiliency. And you know, after those quotes made it into the story, I had a lot of people inside the government, some sources that I'm talking to, go. This is the perfect example of why the government needs to embrace cloud more. Yes. The cloud databases are heavily protected. They have backups upon backups upon backups, and no system is, you know, beholden to a building being flooded and a vital government system being knocked offline. So, yeah, resiliency conversations, this is a perfect example of how they're unfolding in the government. So
1: with being offline since July 26th, are we... um Going to be in trouble as we come up to the next election?
0: No, I don't think so. And here's the thing about these these vulnerability scans is they happen once a week. So with July 26th, being the date that everything was knocked offline and August 6th being the day that they are coming back. They've missed one round of okay. stands. Okay. So, I- is it a great thing that it went offline as we approach the 2018 midterm elections and there's been reports that the Russians have been poking around already? No, it's not great. However, it's temporary. This is Got not it. this is not uh, a humongous deal where we're going to have congressional conversations. And you're going to see this on the front page news for the next two to three weeks. No. Look, this happened. It's newsworthy, but it is something that is going to be dealt with in the next 72 hours, and the world will keep spinning. Awesome. So... In other news, three Ukrainians accused of hacking vast quantities of financial data from U.S. businesses have been indicted. Uh, The trio, allegedly part of the infamous hacking group called Fin7, also widely known as Carbonac, uh, they allegedly stole billions of dollars from worldwide banks and tens of millions of dollars from U.S. companies since the group's inception back in 2014. They're a highly organized and incredibly successful group and the arrest might not even knock the entire group offline. The three men that were arrested faced 26 felony charges, but there are many more uh, people that are part of this group. The group was known for hitting restaurant and hospitality groups, counting Chipotle, Arby's, and some state casinos in Washington as their victims. Jen, my question for you, we've talked a lot about law enforcement's ability to deal with cybercrime. Does this change your opinion at all?
1: I mean, it's been, what, four years um, before we could make a in it, so it doesn't really change my opinion. Um, but you would think that Chipotle and Arby's and others would also be spending resources on trying to solve this problem.
0: Right, and it was really telling to me that The actual end victims weren't a part of the press conference in Seattle on Wednesday, that it was the credit card companies that were actually there. Visa and MasterCard had some executives that were there talking about this. But yeah, the list of companies that they hit inside the U.S. was really, really interesting to me because it was all like point of sale stuff. Yeah. If it wasn't point of sale stuff, it was really interesting social engineering where they would send malicious phishing emails, but then actually make phone calls to the companies to be like, you need to click on these attachments, like these are legitimate. And they weren't. They they they, they helped um, the scheme <laughs> proliferate. So yeah, I, I think it does. I, I think that those companies have woken up a little bit. But I, I think that the, the feds really took the lead here on, on trying to get them extradited to the to the nation and put under wraps. And I think it's a a step forward. I mean, financial cybercrime rings are are going to proliferate, so the government is going to do what they have to do to make sure that the money stays with the companies.
1: And that also goes back to just make sure your workforce is trained not to click on links. So talking more about FIN7, it seems the group operated in the same way startups often operate. The admin stood up HipChat and Jira instances, allowing its contributors to set up hacks in the same way developers ship code and deal with bugs. The operation was run by guys who would look more like startup founders, enterprise tech background, the CV of a sysadmin, and raising young families in their off time. It just so happened so that, that instead of some SaaS project or monthly box description service, Fin7 was running one of the biggest cybercrime operations in the world. Greg. Is this what organized crime is now in the 21st century?
0: They really put the organized in organized crime. That was one of the most fascinating things that uh, we discovered as we read through these indictments. Uh, Our Cyberscoops' Patrick Hall O'Neill has uh, a front page story on this right now on our website that kind of looks at— how Fin7 operated. And it's funny, we use the term cybercrime unicorn in the same way that we talk about startups being unicorns. Uh, Startup unicorns are billion-dollar businesses, and that's what Fin7 was. They made billions of of dollars and billions of euros doing what they did. And they did it in a way that mirrors what startups do. They had JIRA instances. They were using project management tools that instead of talking about code bases, they were talking about hacking targets. I mean, that's really, really interesting to me in that all the tools that we talk about when it... In in terms of startups and standing up companies, they are just tools and you can use them for (laughs) nefarious purposes the same way that you could use a hammer for a murder weapon. Like, it's really fascinating that all of these tools and all of the VC money that goes into these tools, nobody ever thought that you're going to be able to use HipChat and Jira to stand up a billion dollar hacking business. So it's a fascinating aspect that I don't think is going away. I would imagine that there are other hacking groups out there that are using the same tools because it's good organization. You, you need to have organization if you're if you're going to run an operation. That's not just a lone wolf thing. I mean, I, I'm guessing that these companies would prefer to have their stuff just be used for software engineering, and that's that, and not be part of organized crime. But, I mean, there's no way to know that.
1: I mean, there may be several people there that don't realize that they're working for the bad guys. Right. Just given how well it's set up.
0: Right. So... Speaking of America and its technological future, uh, the U.S. government is continuing to worry about the security of Chinese telecom tech. And those worries may be unintentionally jeopardizing the U.S.'s bid to beat China to a nationwide 5G network. Amid the calls to ban Huawei and ZTE from doing business in America, a race to embrace and deploy the new tech is caught up in the realities of geopolitics and the supply chain. The prevailing sense among many experts is that two of the U.S.'s chief technological priorities in the coming years, which are a spying-proof telecommunication supply chain and the world's first national 5G network, may end up undermining each other. Jen, my question for you is, do you think 5G being slapped with the only made in America tag is a good way to go for the future?
1: I don't think that's even possible. I, you know, I don't think we're going to be the only ones with it. Um, I think we just have to make room and assume.
0: Right. And the, the supply chain thing here is really, really interesting to me because we talked to this story. For this story, we talked to some rural telecom companies. And they aren't even thinking about this, and they aren't even and, and, and it's they should be, but they're also thinking about it from the digital divide aspect. I mean, you talk about South Dakota and out in the Midwest, you're talking about places where broadband is really really a rarity at this point, and these people just want to get internet connectivity out there. So we talked to somebody in South Dakota that was that I believe had done business with Huawei. And he was like, look, I'm just trying to get people internet. Like, I'm not worried about the surveillance aspect of this. Like, we want the internet the same way people on both coasts have the internet. I
1: mean, we can drive two miles down the road and find places without internet.
0: Right. So that it's an interesting wrinkle. And it's something that is being hammered out in the policy areas. But I think that the way we're going about it is a little off. Like, I don't think that these arguments are part and parcel. Like, I think the supply chain part of everything and the geopolitics and the intelligence community part of it, I, I don't think that they should be interlinked. Like, I, I really think that – and we're close to 5G now, so there the, the race is clearly almost over, but – at the same time, the, the arguments that are delaying this, I, I, I think, are misguided, and there are some policy people that need to reevaluate the way that they're going about it.
1: So in other news, data from the popular encrypted messenger op Telegram was hijacked by Iran's state-owned telecommunications giant on Monday, a day before proposed protest over the country's economic crisis. Telegram is banned in Iran, but is widely used by activists and tens of millions of members of the Iranian public. It looks like it was a BGP hijack, a move that's promoted a public announcement of an investigation into the incident from inside the Iranian government. Seems like the telegram can't catch a break, no?
0: Yeah, a telegram, uh, there there have been so many stories over the past, I feel like 12, 18 months, maybe even going back further, that the service just has a bullseye on it, whether it's from uh, the Middle East or other regimes where censorship uh, is a big deal where they find a way around Telegram, whether it's through a BGP hijack or it's through rumors that their encryption have has been popped. And outside of those censorship organizations, there's long been stories about Russia having access to Telegram's uh, you know, the underlying technology of Telegram and, and kind of worming their way around that encryption too. Look, there are so many other encrypted messengers out there. Signal is a really popular one. There's Wire. There's Wicker. Uh, I know WhatsApp has end-to-end encryption as well. Uh, I, I don't understand why anybody would use Telegram. I really don't.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean... I'm, I'm strong. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, well,
0: it, it's not... Look, Telegram has its problems, like I was just saying, but it's just – it's a marketplace thing. You have other options. So why would you use a product that has continually been been, – not just breached. It's just – it's shady. Let's just say it's shady for for better or worse. So go use a a product that is not as shady. Like that just seems (laughs) to be common sense. Fair enough. so let's shift to some business news. Uh, the big news this week were some acquisitions. One was occurred when Cisco announced that it intends to acquire Duo Security, which provides multi-factor authentication and identity management services for companies across their networks. Uh, the sale was pretty big. Uh, Cisco bought Duo for $2.35 billion. Duo SaaS solution will be integrated into Cisco's existing on-premise identity management solutions as well as enhance Cisco's other cloud deliver products. Duo has raised about 120 million in venture capital funding and was valued at around 1.17 billion last year. Also, mail company Mimecast acquired cybersecurity startup Solbit for 88 million. Solbit is a threat detection company founded in Israel and is based now in San Francisco. And the deal comes weeks after Mimecast acquired Atata, a uh, cybersecurity training platform. So Jen, my question, those are two pretty good exits, right?
1: These are great exits, you know, and it's interesting because I think we're seeing a lot of smaller companies that are raising venture capital in the cyberspace um, that are sort of attacking the same problem. So I do think that eventually we're going to see a roll-up of companies that have reached 5 or $10 million in revenue. Um, I think we'll see that happen. But these are really exciting exits, and I think they probably take our cybersecurity valuations up over the next um, several quarters.
0: Yeah, talk about that a little bit. How does... A move like this affect the greater landscape.
1: So, as as companies are raising capital, you know they have more exits to point to that are large. Um, so it sort of helps them with negotiation. And you know, I would have said um, recently that we're sort of seeing less and less of those bigger acquisitions, but they seem to be upticking again, um, which again just will lead to more capital raised into startups, and then you know bigger valuations. So. So you really have to see sort of larger exits to accommodate them. Um, But as I said, you know, we've seen, um, you know, dozens of startups sort of in each little industry sector doing sort of the same thing. They're kind of getting stuck um, at a revenue level that's not going to sustain them and not going to produce an exit big enough for the amount of capital they've raised. And cybersecurity companies have raised a lot of capital and just not going to be able to exit to make investors money.
0: Interesting. Interesting.
1: So it wouldn't be a week without some breach news, so let's do a breach read round here. Reddit revealed that a data breach between June 14th and 18th exposed the private data of some users, as well as private messages, source code, and internal logs. The hacker used an SMS intercept to gain access to the site. A series of efficient attacks between March 14th and April 3rd at UnityPoint Health, one of the Midwest's largest healthcare networks compromised, The personal data of about 1.4 million people and Dixon's Carphone, a large European electronics and telecom retailer, said that a breach of its system last year could have resulted in attackers accessing roughly 10 million records, including customers' personal data. That 10 million figure was revised from just under 2 million when the breach was initially announced. Greg, which one of these sticks in your mind the most?
0: Uh, the Reddit one. The Reddit one pops out to me only because of the way the hacker got into the site, that SMS intercept. Look, there's been a lot of talk recently that SMS, using SMS as the second factor in multi-factor authentication is not the way to go. It is very, very easy for somebody to maliciously walk into a T-Mobile place, uh, any any character. I shouldn't single out T-Mobile. T-Mobile, Verizon, Sprint, it, it does not matter. Uh, they can walk in, and if they have their phone number, they can very easily switch it onto a different SIM card, and then all of those uh, SMS tokens that you're getting are not coming directly to you. That's very dangerous. There are a lot of services out there that use SMS, and you I would say, you know, look, it it is a good starting point for two-factor authentication. However, the more that you do it, the more that you have, you know, you lengthen your ability to be attacked and then you run into problems. it would be disingenuous for me to say that I don't use SMS, but I use it for like simple stuff. Like for instance, I know when I first signed up for Venmo, Venmo does SMS, two-factor authentication. Sure. When I saw that, and all the troubles that VEMO has had. VEMO hasn't been hacked or anything like that, but they have, they've had problems with security and privacy. And look, you're talking about your money. So why why would you want to use SMS if SMS is known to be not as secure and you're going to do that with your your bank accounts and your debit cards and your credit cards? Like, that's an instance where, no, don't use SMS. Figure out a different way for the factor of authentication that you want to get into that network. If it's something else, like, I don't know, like, just some other service, like, uh, you have an account that is just a forum, like, just some forum that you use, or some other internet service that you just use for entertainment. That's fine. If you want to use SMS, go nuts. But if it's for something that, has some importance of financial or personal data or something that could ruin you don't use sms for well, your data Well how about factor. the
1: switch between 2 million records to 10 million breached
0: So that's really interesting to me because I think that's the effects of GDPR while the Dixon's case didn't happen after GDPR was passed I think that you are seeing a company react to the GDPR laws and the statutes in doing what it has to do to make sure that if this happens the next time, that they are following GDPR. And that's something that is really interesting because, hey, the companies know that the European Union is for real on this and they need to follow the letter of the law. So that is really interesting in the way that they reacted, but still the Reddit thing to me is is. Uh, the top breach to be interested in this week. Okay, that will do it for a week's worth of news and then some. So, for our featured interview this week, we talked to Terry Dunlap from Refern Labs. Terry has a really interesting story. He's taken a unique approach to enhancing the security of IoT devices. But his background is one that we are starting to see more and more. Terry has spent time at the NSA, and his time at the NSA was on the offensive side, attacking the networks and devices Now he now defends. So we covered all of it in the interview. Take a listen. Enjoy.
1: Today we have with us Terry Dunlap, CEO of Refirm Labs. Thanks for joining us, Terry. You're very welcome.
0: So, Terry, I would love to hear about your latest work in the startup world and how things are going for your company.
2: Yeah, things are going great. The company's been around uh, almost a year now. Um, we started uh, actually back in uh, July-August time frame last year with about $1.5 million in a seed round from uh, Datatribe, who is a uh, startup studio in Maryland. Uh, backed by Bob Ackerman uh, and Allegis Cyber out on the west coast. So yeah, they recognized uh, some potential with our company which uh, tries to secure IOT and embedded devices but at the firmware level before they even roll off the production line and we've spent most of that seed round basically getting the platform as a scalable enterprise SaaS subscription offering and uh, we have some customers, we're getting some traction, and we're out raising an A round. So things are, things are going okay so far.
0: So talk to me a little bit about that firmware spot, because I feel that that is the big thing when it comes to IoT security. Yeah. Consumers don't have the ability to update that firmware. And that's when you see things like, for instance, what happened with Mirai. Right. So talk to me a little bit about how your product helps with that problem when it comes to IoT security. Well, first, let's set the
2: stage and and explain how security products for IoT and other embedded devices work today. And that is that they are all reactionary. So there's either some agent or some device you put in front of or near your IoT device that looks for anomalous traffic or suspicious behavior or network patterns. And then it takes some type of action to let you know that you're under attack or something suspicious is happening and then you can either segregate that device, take it off the network, put it in a VLAN or whatever. Our solution attempts to stop those problems before they even go to production. With our platform we're actually taking the firmware that would go to the assembly line and reverse engineering it just like a state-sponsored attacker would. We are breaking it down into the underlying file system, examining every single binary to see if there are already known vulnerabilities that may have been missed. We also have a way to identify and detect potential zero days, which are the most important. And then we can also find embedded crypto material, like a manufacturer's private signing key, and hard-coded usernames and accounts uh, uh, that have been embedded in the uh, the firmware. And that's how a lot of these Mirai and botnet attacks take place, is that some of these people who, who are looking at these devices, find backdoors that are usually, in most cases, left by accident by engineering teams during the debug process, and that's how these. We, we try and stop these problems before they even get released to the production line. Plus, it also helps eliminate third-party risk, or at least expose it. So, in most cases, uh, very few people develop the entire firmware image for an IoT device end end. So you might have some in-house developers doing some component of the work. But chances are you're going to have other chips and devices and components in there that are going to require either kernel modules, device drivers, or some object code that you didn't write. Say it's a Broadcom chip or a Qualcomm chip or something. Okay. Now, they're going to send you either the kernel drivers or the kernel modules, and you're going to have to compile that with your clean firmware, your clean source code, I should say, to create that firmware image. They're not going to give you the source code. So how do you check that to make sure that it's secure? So now that your stuff's secure, you're combining it with this third party that you have no insight into what their security posture is. How do you know that's still secure? With Centrifuge, you can drop it into the platform in about 30 minutes. If we identify anything, chances are it was introduced by your supply chain.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It sounds like your product is really geared toward the manufacturing and the process and the production of... These devices. It's not really for the end users who have, who eventually have the Fitbits or have their Nest plugged into their wall.
2: Not yet, but we are getting there. At RSA, when uh, we were in the innovation sandbox this year, we released or debuted a new feature of our platform, which is called Centrifuge Guardian. Okay. It's the continuous monitoring component of the firmware image. So here's how this would play out in an enterprise manufacturer. Uh, we're going to take the consumer out because in our ideal world, once we get to this nirvana that we have for a vision, for firmware, all these consumer devices will automatically update when there's a new firmware. Right now, a lot of you know that when there's an update, if you're even aware that there's an update from the manufacturer, you're required to log into the manufacturer's website go to the support page look for the firmware version for the device you have download the firmware image log into your iot device yeah there's to... already too many steps you've yeah, lost yeah, me already, already yeah <laughs> so you see what i'm saying so anyway here's how the continuous monitoring works so let's assume you're the manufacturer so you go to market you put your firmware uh image that golden image that's secure into your cloud repository so you go produce all your IoT devices uh, using our SDK that pings that cloud periodically looking for updates. And if a new vulnerability is released, if a new CVE is released, we actually run what are called analyzers against everybody's golden firmware image in the cloud. And if we see a problem, then we notify you and let you know that for example your firmware image that was secure six months ago is now vulnerable to a new open ssh vulnerability because you used open ssh from, from the, the repo so now you are in a proactive situation where you can actually start issuing a patch or a, or a firmware update so you're in a better position than most manufacturers are today now when that is is ready it goes up to the cloud and the device that you manufactured It's periodically pinging the cloud to see if there's a new update, taking you, the human, out of the equation so you don't have to update these devices. So now it'll see that there's a new update available. It'll download it, install it, you're good to go. That's where we want to get to. Right now we have the ability to examine the firmware, whether it's in the enterprise already deployed on a security camera or a printer, or work with manufacturers, and we have the continuous monitoring part happening right now so we can notify manufacturers and enterprises that hey a new vulnerability came out today it impacts you take some action.
1: So can you retroactively um, solve some of my IoT devices? I
2: don't think we can solve them but we can make you acutely aware of, of, of what's wrong with them right now so we can expose any weaknesses that are there Uh, It would be up to you to go to the manufacturer to see if there's an update or to have somebody like us contact the manufacturer on your behalf and say, we found these vulnerabilities that need to be fixed. And we've done that a number of times with uh, a number of Cisco products. Customers have asked us or use our platform to test their own networking gear that they have throughout the enterprise. And if they find something and they don't have a, a direct path to notify uh, Cisco or the CERT team at Cisco, they'll work through us, and we'll notify and work with Cisco on their behalf.
0: So, you know, we were just talking about the consumer level and, and sort of moving away from that, but whether it's the consumer or the enterprise level, what sectors are you seeing that are most impacted by the work that you're doing?
2: Actually, it's 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 widespread. Uh, telecom sector seems to be uh, big, and uh, there there's this I'll tell you a story that originally drives this point home. This applies to every sector because almost every sector deploys security cameras. Okay. okay. Now, there are two security camera manufacturers that have been in the news probably within the past year uh, making headlines. One is HickVision and the other one is Dahua, both out of China. Okay. HickVision, Wall Street Journal reported a few months ago that they're 42% owned by the Chinese government. So we had a Fortune 500 company contact us. Concerned about some of the security cameras they had deployed at a particular property. Uh, we took a look at the firmware, we put it into our platform, and we identified a, a potential backdoor. Now, normally these engineering backdoors have pretty telltale characteristics that it was done by accident and it was simply forgotten to, to, to be taken okay. out. Well, in this particular case, this was not accidental, this was pure maliciousness. So we, we actually wrote up a report, submitted it to this customer. And within 36 hours, they thanked us for the work we did and said, look what we found. And he attached a firewall log. And we were able to uh, ascertain the fact that their network traffic at this particular property was being sent out through the cameras to Chinese IP addresses. Okay. So with that information, they were able to take action to segregate. Remediate that, and then uh, in a couple weeks or so, they ended up uh, replacing all those Dahua security cameras on their network.
0: So, talk to me a little bit about the the blowback that those companies must be getting. Do you think these companies even care? And the companies that are buying these security cameras are they even aware of the risks? Now, where they either want the market to give them more security cameras, or I mean, what what, what's their option for fixing this outside of you know watching over the cameras? in in the way they would watch over their endpoints inside the business
2: now one thing i noticed i didn't know anything about how the security video surveillance camera industry operates but it it, what i've been able to ascertain is that these cameras are sold to these fortune 500 companies through basically vars value-added resellers uh that have a plethora of offerings from different manufacturers so what we've seen over over the past few months is uh HickVision and Dahua trying to fight back against this type of negative publicity because we're not the only company to have discovered these types of backdoors. Other researchers and other companies have discovered these things in different places in the firmware, uh, different makes and models, but it's it's a persistent claim. So what we're seeing is that a lot of these VARs, these value-added resellers, these cameras are starting to drop these product lines. And in fact, if you guys Google there is a, a House bill that passed recently, I don't know if it's total law yet, but I know it came out of the House, a, a, a bill that bans the government and military and embassies from using Hikvision and Dahua cameras. Okay. So there, I believe that there's an effort underway now to have a number of embassies start to remove those cameras and replace them with, with something else. And there's an interesting story about the Dahua. We actually took the findings from that uh, Fortune 500 customer, and with their permission, we published a vulnerability report back in November. We didn't use their name, but we used the manufacturer of Dahua, the specific camera, exactly what we found where we found it. I have an interesting email chain where their actual uh, head of overseas marketing contacted me because the Washington Post ran a very, the, the story about our vulnerability report and said, we take issue with this. Um, you looked at the wrong firmware. And he sent me a link to the most current firmware. So we took a look at the most current firmware sent to us by Dahua, and sure enough, the back door was still there. Mm. And we showed him all the technical details and everything that, you know, this is, it is still there. And then his response to me was, I spoke to my engineer, I shared with him your results, He said that this is a mistake. My reply to him was, are you sure your engineer is working for you and not your government? And I never heard another reply back. Yikes. Wow. Yikes.
1: Wow. So we heard you got your interest in computers and hacking um, early on. Yes. Um, Tell us more about that and how you got into IoT. (laughs) Okay.
2: Um, I'll try and keep this short.
1: 1985
2: had a Commodore 64, a couple floppy drives, and a 300-baud modem. And one of the things that uh, me and some guys in high school were doing, we were, I was a senior at the time, the other guys were juniors. Uh, I'm dating myself here, but we would would actually go out to the local mall and go dumpster diving. And for those people that don't know what dumpster diving is, it's where we would actually go through and rip through trash bags around 2, 3, 4 in the morning at the local mall and pull out all the carbon copies for credit cards. And then we would piece those back together to get the full credit card number. Then we would manipulate uh, the phone system to make free long-distance calls out to the West Coast to a uh, bulletin board system called The Well. And then we would upload local credit card numbers out there. And then we would download stolen credit card numbers from out there uh, to use in Ohio. So Okay. We, we, would, <laughs> we, would, we, would, we would order things like stupid stuff. Uh, you know high schoolers would order like fireworks and extra computer components and printers and more disk drives and stuff like that Um, however one of the guys decided to kind of do this on his own without any coordination from the rest of us and started having packages delivered uh, via UPS to an abandoned house that was next to his (sighs) and the property owner noticed all the UPS stickers about the missed packages notified the police police contacted UPS so they staked out the house one time waited for a delivery watched them pick it up followed him to his house, knocked on his door. He let them in, and uh, they confiscated a number of things in, in his bedroom, one being a diary where he actually wrote out everybody's activities and their real names. Oh, no. taking notes. You don't
0: do that. You don't do Never that. Never in
1: writing.
2: Never in <laughs> yes. writing. So I ended up in juvenile detention for about five days with me and, every, and, and the other guys involved. Um, luckily, at the time, the 1986 Computer Fraud and Abuse Act had not been passed. So okay, I, I couldn't. No, you, you skated past yes, that one. The only thing that they could charge us with was credit card fraud, and gave us uh, three week, three years, three years probation, and had to pay court costs, and that was pretty much uh, enough for me to be scared straight. If anybody yeah. remembers the Scared Straight uh, series back in the in the eighties, um, ended up uh, you know going through college, going through that whole thing, and then was actually uh, employed by um, State Farm doing cybersecurity work for them. And I happened to attend a cybersecurity conference in Baltimore. It happened to be a SANS conference, and I met a woman standing in line at Starbucks who simply had her first name and said she worked at the DOD. And I told her, I said, that'd be an awesome place to work because you guys are under constant attack. Uh, would love to get more information and see if you might have opportunities. And sure enough, send a resume, and a few weeks later I get a phone call, and it's not necessarily the DOD, it's the NSA.
0: Wow, okay.
2: So I ended up uh, doing a phone interview, flew out there, and ended up uh, starting in 2002 working at the NSA doing offensive cyber ops, targeting embedded devices before they were called IoT. And that's how the whole process got started. Worked there for five years and then left and started my first company, Tactical Network Solutions, which is still around, and focuses on offensive cyber capabilities for government law enforcement intelligence agencies and friendly foreign governments we do a lot of training in that area too teach people how to do this stuff cuz you don't they don't teach it in school right uh, so there's a huge demand out there to understand how this stuff works um, and that's where we ended up developing centrifuge to help us with our customers identify and weaponize zero days and then the investors at data saw us and we spun it out into refirm labs last year and so tactical network solutions does all the spooky stuff offensive stuff for the government and refirm labs is in the business of protecting manufacturers and enterprises against uh, our colleagues in foreign countries who are bad actors.
0: So talk to me a little bit about that background with the offensive and defensive side of things. Do you draw, or let me rephrase that, do you see that the good defensive people come from the offensive side because they know both sides of what goes in to an attack? I'm I'm
2: biased, but yes, I I believe that uh, deep down because, I mean, I wasn't taught any of this stuff in school. In fact, I didn't even major in computer science in college. It was comp sci, econ, and law and public policy. Okay. So everything I learned, I learned on my own. And all the guys that uh, I work with, uh, both at Tactical Network Solutions and uh, at Refirm Labs, most of them uh, are self-taught. Uh, I, I'd say my, my lead reverse engineer, uh, Craig Hefner, uh, DEFCON speaker, Black Hat speaker, was self-taught. And his story is amazing because he was actually an infantry uh, guy over in Afghanistan who didn't see a lot of action and had his wife send him computer books. Wow. how How TCP ip works and how to program and all that kind of stuff. And he he, he built himself this huge brand and reputation on how to reverse engineer stuff and look and weaponize these exploits all on his own. So, yeah, I personally am a believer that having come from the offensive side uh, gives you a significant advantage in, in playing defense.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So what advice would you give somebody who is looking to transition into the startup world?
2: Into the startup. Whether
0: side. it is oh, okay. starting their own company, yeah. you know, a little bit more entrepreneurial, or if they're just looking for, you know, a, a different work lifestyle.
2: I, I'll, I'll tell you uh, what, what I've done in the past, and uh, I've seen this successful with, with other people, is, you know, don't give up your day job right away. That, I think that was the mistake I made. It was a risk. But, you know, working at the NSA, even my branch chief said, good luck. If it doesn't work out, you're welcome back here. So that was almost like a no-risk thing, but I don't, think, I, I don't think that's going to be the case for everybody. So what I would probably recommend is that you actually work on something in your spare time. Um, in fact, when we were building Centrifuge uh, for Tactical Network Solutions, I had my guys. They believed in it so much that I said, hey, someday this will pay off just bear with me, so they were building it. Not only were they working at Tactical Network Solutions during the day, working on government contracts, but then they would go home at night and on the weekends and build this centrifuge platform with the eventual payoff that it will become another company and you know all that kind of stuff. I would advise people to, to, to kind of do a side hustle to get the thing built, get a handful of customers. Once you have some traction that somebody's paying you, then take the full leap into doing this thing as a full-time gig. But do not do it with just an idea build it first make sure someone's going to give you hard-earned cash for what you got then you know you're on to something
1: so what was that moment you decided to raise that seed round you mentioned earlier actually we didn't
2: we we had so many people approach us uh, uh, both local and regional investors at tactical network solutions because a lot of companies saw that we were building a brand in a very unique niche that nobody else uh, was cornering. And they wanted to get into not only that specific niche, but they saw us as a, a, as a pathway into classified government contracts with the NSA. So they wanted to buy their access in. So during the whole you know 10, 11 years at Tactical Network Solutions, we never sought any money. I put 10 grand into the company on day one and never put another dime in and it was profitable from the get go. So when we were presenting at a Maryland Tech Breakfast uh, startup uh, conference, even though we weren't even a startup, but I was encouraged to go to present the platform, we were approached afterwards and they said, have you thought about using this platform as a defensive tool for manufacturers and enterprises? We were happy playing in the offensive space where we were. I mean, it's, it's cool to be able to sit around Thanksgiving and talk about your customers being NSA, CIA, Marshalls, uh, Special Operations Command. We never thought about helping commercial industry. So it took them like three months of convincing us that this is something that could really be huge and be a big payoff. So we put our heads together and figure, okay, Tactical Network Solutions is fine on its own. Nice little lifestyle company does its thing. Let's spin this platform off and see if we can make it bigger and and have more than just, you know, five customers on one hand. Let's see if we can go after the Fortune 500 or the Fortune 1000. So we reluctantly took it. We weren't seeking it. So we took it, and uh, here we are today.
0: So I could talk to you for a while about it. Hopefully, (laughs) about about the tactical network solutions part of it, the offensive cybersecurity part of it, of just this community is so interesting to me because look, it's shady. It's the the shady part (laughs) of of this community with everything else that is going on so me being the journalist i'm going to ask you yeah. about the shady parts okay. kind of talk to me a little bit <laughs> kind of talk to me a little bit what you can talk to me about that that work it, was it strictly just for the government or was it more for i don't is there anybody else but the government that would want offensive cybersecurity measures
2: sure i mean criminals um, <laughs> well, were, were you, were, yeah. I mean,
0: that you could legally sell to, something that wouldn't land yeah. you in yeah. jail for a second time. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, no um, you know, we were trying to go down the path and convince people to, to be more um, uh, proactive in their defense by, you know, hacking back. But that wasn't gaining traction, you know, two thousand and. Uh, ten, eleven time frame. I, there's still some talk about companies doing that, but I don't. I think for legal reasons, they're they're just not going to do it. Um, but yeah, it was primarily the government, uh, friendly foreign governments, uh, intelligence agencies, and the military. Uh, and we did have we did uh, do some work and continue to do some work with law enforcement.
0: So let's back up to that hackback thing because that is definitely something that, especially in Washington is in the conversation right now cybersecurity policy wise do you think companies should be able to do that
2: i'm biased i think so yeah i think within within the with the right with the right personnel who have the right skill set and are ethical i think it should be part of a corporation's repertoire without repercussions now somebody will argue okay so you're you're being attacked by this russian ip address uh, how do you know that it's not being spoofed and it's actually an insulin pump and you take it out and somebody dies? I mean, those are all those are legitimate concerns. Um, I'm sure if we put enough brain power into it, we could figure out ways to, you know, determine that. But I mean, that's it's not a priority right now. So no one's spending a lot of time trying to figure that problem out. But it is a legitimate concern. But I'm of the mindset, given from where I come from and, and the way I operate, I, I'm all for active active defense or going offensive against some of these actors
0: right and you say the right skill set and yeah. the right people and the right personnel i mean that's w- way easier said than done and
2: exactly and the thing that and, you know if anybody looks me up on, on linkedin they'll see that i have this article out there that basically calls bs on these uh paper certifications and say you're you know a security expert i think that's just complete bs anybody can sit down read a book and go in and pass some comprehensive test and walk out with a certificate saying, oh, I know security. That is, that is I am not a fan of the, the, the certification that cottage industry cranking out these quote-unquote security professionals that are getting these certificates and now enterprises are duped into thinking that these guys are going to be able to actively defend them against these threats i mean all you get is book knowledge and maybe maybe depending on what certification you sit for you might know how to run some open source tools and that's about it it what doesn't about, teach you to think like an attacker
0: okay so even with all of that and and i i agree with some of the things that you were saying there but what about the geopolitical aspect of this let's hypothetically say sony sony put north korea into the the dark more so than they already are in response to what north korea did to sony and suddenly we're at world the, the precipice of world war 3 is that something that the government i can't see the state department or uh, you know high level ranking political officials being like okay we're in world war 3 because a movie company didn't like what a country did to them that just doesn't strike me as something that the, the political mindset would we'll be happy with.
2: No, you're right. And, it, you know, if, if there were to be any type of corporate uh, hacking back to prevent those types of things, you, you're going to have to work with, with the government in some way. There's going to have to be some government entity involved uh, to, to oversee what is actually being done. Now, I, I had heard, maybe you guys know, but I had heard there was like the development or the concept of kind of like a uh, a cyber core, uh, Minutemen militia f- that were like cyber professionals right. that, that know how to do this, that have been trained in, in, in doing these types of things to come to the defenses of some of these companies. Maybe that is an intermediate step or maybe that is the step to take next is to have some type of cyber national guard that can be called into uh, a particular company's uh, infrastructure to help defend it and you know, take some type of offensive action. We can't just sit here and take it on the chin all the time because we have all these rules to follow. Our, our adversaries aren't following any damn rules. I mean, that's what's hampering us from having the impact we need to have and taking these guys out is that we're hamstrung by the courts and rules. I think there are certain, certain times you've got to throw the rule book out and just go at it and show them who's boss.
0: So to end our interviews, we always ask our guests one random question. And since you deal so much with IoT, I'm wondering what is your favorite IoT device out there right now?
2: My favorite IoT device would have to be any of the wireless routers that allow me to flash my own firmware image onto
0: Wow. Okay. That's pretty particular. I thought (laughs) I was going to get like, oh, my, my thermostat or, or my, my, uh, (laughs) my Fitbit. No, you're like, we're talking hardcore, hardcore infrastructure stuff.
2: I I mean, no, no offense to uh, uh, Verizon, no offense to, you know, Comcast, Xfinity. Anytime one of those, you know, wireless router gateway devices come into my house, I take it right out and put in my own. I do not trust them. Uh, there are too many problems, too many you know, back doors that are you know, accidentally left behind. I'd, I'd rather be able to control what's coming in and out of my house.
0: Uh, I will now go home and make sure that I have my own wireless router to have.
1: Terry, appreciate
0: it. Thank you sure. very much thanks, for joining Terry. us today. Thanks,
2: thanks for inviting
1: me. Thanks again to Terry for joining us today. Greg, do you think that those routers are going to become a household item?
0: Uh, In a word, no. (laughs) But, uh, hey, Terry's a smart guy. He loves that stuff. Somebody has to protect it, and somebody has to be interested in it. So if he's into the hardware and breaking it open and figuring out how to protect it, all the more power to him.
1: Don't forget, we'll be in Vegas next week for all the cyber events. We're also having an event of our own. If you want to learn more, make sure you follow us on Twitter. We'll tweet out all the details.
0: Okay, everyone, that's it for this week. See you in the desert for Hacker Summer Camp.
1: Stay curious.